You ever uh, subtly edit a dick in there or something? Oh, I wish I, I could, I, or I should at least, but it all goes through my supervisor. So my supervisor is like, hey, you have to make this edit. You have to, like, take this dick out, like, at 533. <laughs> and you have to stop, stop just putting in scenes of, like, gay porn in the middle of your, like, documentary about Cuba. <laughs> He's pulling you into the office, like, listen here, Tyler Dirt, stop putting dicks in the movies. Well, the way you made your boss sound was like he said it so casually. You know, it's like, listen, I really liked, uh, there were some clean cuts there. Audio sounded great. Uh, oh, uh, there was this note at 2.30, saw the dick. Would you mind taking that out? I really appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> A final note. <laughs> I don't boss. know if my boss would notice like a frame or two of dick because it's. <laughs> I think that I think that a frame or two of dick is the name of my new novel that I'm working on. <laughs> a frame or two of dick. I love it. <laughs> okay, and with that, welcome to the Horror Explorer podcast. Flashback. So this is a podcast determined to turn younger people on to horror movies they might have never seen or even heard of. We like to focus on VHS-era horror that most younger horror fans aren't aware of. And in the case of these flashback episodes, we're looking at movies the podcast covered a long time ago when our format was different to give our newer co-hosts an opportunity to like weigh in and discuss some of these movies. So hi, I'm Dave. I'm back again. And also we have back again Eric. Salutations. And Liam. Hello, guys. Hello. And also joining us this week is Sean. Hey. <laughs> so every week we watch a VHS-era movie that most people our age might not be familiar with because the whole point of this podcast is to make younger horror fans aware that the best new horror movie they see this year could be a movie from 30 years ago that they didn't even know existed. And this week we're revisiting Night of the Comet. I'd never seen this movie before. Honestly, I was kind of, it was interesting looking up how to find it. Uh, it was pretty quick. It seemed more popular than I thought it was, you know? Had you heard of it before? Never. No, not at all. Oh, cool. And uh, I had heard of the movie because it's like a cult classic from the 80s, but I'd never seen it either until today. Yeah, I'd, I'd never heard of this one. I'd never seen this one. I hadn't heard of this one to the extent that I don't even have anything witty to say about not having heard of it. Like, I just I just didn't know it existed at all. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really know it existed until Mike introduced it to me. And then I saw it, and I was like, oh, cool. And then we did the podcast, and I was like, oh, cool. So this is, like, my second or third time seeing it. So I haven't really – I don't have much background with this movie. Does this actually call uh – is this actually a cult classic? Like, it actually quantifies as a cult classic officially? I think so. Like, I've heard it referred to as a cult classic after doing some digging on the movie. But I'm not sure. Well, I th I th it seems like every single movie um, that we've ever covered on this podcast is a cult classic to some extent. I guess it 
depends on how broad the term is. Like, I don't, I don't think people are going to midnight screenings to watch this movie or anything, but, um, <laughs> you know, there, there's certainly some, some stuff to like in it, so. Well, didn't I can you see say people getting really into it? Didn't you say there was a screening of it in Toronto? John? Yeah, it's starting in five minutes, actually. Oh, no wow. way. Yeah, it was because that was the first thing I Googled. That's the first thing that came up. It's playing at the Kingsway Theater at 845. So I, I feel like I should be down there live, <laughs> you know, and in the lineup with these people. Oh, my God. Well, there goes God proving me wrong again. Okay, <laughs> cult classic it is. What, that's, that's 10 for 10 now? There go, way to go, God. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Okay, so what's this movie about? This movie is about a comet that, this is straight from IMDb, so thank you IMDb, with a slight addition by me. So, or also by Mike. A comet wipes out most life on Earth, which leaves two valley girls to fight against the Campbell zombies and a group of scientists with a sinister agenda while the girls try to get laid. Alright, let's play Guess What Mike and Dave added into the synopsis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was actually just the words valley girls. <laughs> really? No. <laughs> no, that's what's funny. No, that is the description. You know what I mean? That's there was nothing. That's exact. I read that too. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, do you guys notice anybody interesting in the crew or cast? Uh, well, I mean, I do makeup and effects for film and TV. I'm always want to watch a movie like this. I'm always looking for who did the makeup for this, right? Uh, I didn't know who this guy was. I MDB'd him, a guy named David B. Miller, and he really wasn't under my radar because you hear about the legends, Tom Savini, for example, the Rick Bakers, the, the everybody else who's just been such a legend, and I hadn't heard of this guy, but he, interestingly enough, uh, he worked on Batman and Robin. I think that we can thank him for making Arnold look badass, but I don't think we have to blame him for putting nipples on Batman's suit. Uh, <laughs> But he was that Naked Gun three and three thirty three and a third uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. So he's done some stuff, but this was actually apparently his first head of department. So it was all his responsibility, all under his wing. There, oh, that's wild. So, so if there's nipples in this movie, we can blame him. <laughs> <laughs> I got a note about the nipples in this movie. Actually, we'll talk. We'll talk. All right, all right. <laughs> so speaking of nipples, one of our actors in this movie is Mary Warrenov who would play the mother in Terrorvision. So that means a lot to me, and also maybe to Eric? I don't know. Yeah. She uh, was good in both. Yeah, she also played in that a Chopping Mall, is what it's called. She had a cameo in that movie. <laughs> I don't know if these names mean anything. Did, did, does she have nipples in both the movies? What, what, what does it have to do with nipples? Uh, it was just a non-sequitur. <laughs> well, I haven't seen either movie. So Night of the Living Nipples. I don't know. Man. Uh, I don't know. That would be weird. Uh, I've You're seen something. I've seen a zombie movie that's like Night of the Living Farts, but uh, Night of the Living Nipples <laughs> might be more interesting. Oh my god! Was it a gas? Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, great! Uh, I've been here all podcast, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Highbrow comedy tonight. <laughs> Time to go jump off a bridge. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay, so we'll see what these guys have to say about Night of the Comet right after this. If you would like to contact us here at the Horror Explorer Podcast, you can reach us via email at horrorexplorerpodcast at gmail.com, or you can interact with us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash horrorexplorer, or follow us on Twitter at horrorexplorer. So now we'll see what these guys thought of Night of the Comet. 
starting with myself. So what better way to open the movie but talk about the opening? So what did you guys think about kind of the spooky soundtrack as well as this really, really serious voiceover narration? I, I probably will say this again. I think that this movie was a uh, an example of its time. You know what I mean? And I think that this intro to it was an example of define epic intro to a voiceover movie like this. You know what I mean? It, it's, it seemed to set up something pretty epic that didn't turn out so epic, but it was interesting, that's for sure. Yeah, I noted the tone of this intro because we jump immediately from this really, really serious voiceover narration that's talking about disaster and destruction and not heeding the warnings left by nature and stuff like that to like a party scene with really hip and fun like electric music so it was really a weird tonal shift which i think will be characteristic of this movie yeah and um i'm sure you guys can speak to it more than i can but it seems like this was kind of a trend in in 80s horror movies maybe 80s b movies is that there's sort of a, a cold opening that seems to um, have like intentional an intentional juxtaposition to it. Um, we're gonna see it again in uh, something like Night of the Creeps, where there's a there's a cold opening, and then the the scope of the movie is kind of intentionally narrowed down, and that happens here. And I feel like it was. Um, I think that the movie was intentionally trying to set up something that was going to be a lot bigger, and then it um, focuses in on something as sort of uh, trivial as two teenage girls' experiences. And I, I liked that. I thought, it, I thought it was neat when it happened. Well, that's a good point. And I can't say whether or not it was an intentional or unintentional juxtaposition, but I, in Night of the Creeps, it's done as a parody of 50s horror films. And here, there's not really a lot of aspects that I think are trying to parody 50s films. Sure. What do you guys think of our introduction to our female hero, uh, Regina, who plays the older sister, as we kind of get, like, a weird, like, pet up from her shoes as she, like, plays this video game? And she's, like, almost, like, sexually aroused by this video game. <laughs> she really was into that. Uh, it was... That's definitely the intro. She's a little bit of a badass. You know, she likes to have fun, but she's a little badass too. You know what I mean? And I guess probably, what was that, 84? Like, what were the years of, like, cutting-edge video games? I, I suppose that was probably early, mid-80s, no? I don't know. Well, I mean, this if, if it was, it seems like it could be relevant. Like, every since this, this movie was obviously geared at the teenagers of 1984... I guess it was just like, oh, she plays video games. I already like her. I mean, that seems what it was trying to paint her a picture as, you mm, know? True, true. That's a good point. Well, one of the things that this movie that, that struck me about it was the script is, like, it's almost as if they were trying to do some stuff that was interesting because you have some commentary, like the very first scene in the movie theater before they show her is a guy trying to uh, negotiate the price of these, like, head comet you know, headbands that he's selling. And uh, later on, you're going to see a guy uh, trying to talk somebody uh, into a higher price on because he's going to let them loan out like a, a rare print of a movie to them. And there's a uh, commentary throughout about uh, consumerism. And, but it's, it's really uneven, and it's like they got tired of certain things that they were doing. Well, her characterization as this badass, you know, gamer girl chick from the 80s is very uneven because they start out strong with her character, but as the movie goes on, they kind of move her into this uh, damsel in distress role and back and forth and back and forth. It's really weird. Well, it's legit. Now that you say that, yeah, they definitely did, especially with the way it ended. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, that, that's a good point. And I, I definitely thought when um, the movie introduced us to this character who was really good at video games, you know, dominating the top ten scoreboard, I thought it was kind of um, suggesting at a, a feminist perspective that would be... Um, that would come up again later on in the movie. I don't know uh, if girls were always depicted as being good at video games back in the 80s, or I don't know if it was... Uh, you know, I, ha- I haven't even played any video games past 2010, but um, I think that it was it was a interesting thing to display when this girl was um, doing something that typically uh, I think men are supposed to be good at, especially... You know, there's there's a single man in in this top ten that she's uh, determined to beat, and she ends up doing it. And so I thought that was that was kind of cool. It was, um, yeah. Actually, I don't have anything more to say. It was cool. Yeah, yeah I, I think that it's it like I said, it's a testament to its time uh, in so many ways. Even just the way they dealt with attractions of women to men and how that was done and how dating was doing and like they kept saying throughout the movie like did you make it with him? Like that was like, did you guys have sex? Like, so it was like trying to use this at the time hip lingo for that. So it's interesting trying to make her hip with this video game at the beginning. You just want a relatable right off the bat, I guess. I do want to touch on the making it thing. Yeah. No one talked like that. <laughs> no, really? Because no one. I really? try to talk like that to be hip. I try to talk like the fifties and eighties movies to be hip. Nobody talked like that, Eric. Never. No. Never. I was sitting there going, why do they keep saying making it instead of just sex or doing it even? Like, that's not even, I, I grew up in the 80s. I'm telling you, no one said making it. Wow. <laughs> my mind is blown. It's a stupid term. A stupid <laughs> term. Oh, my God. Uh, anyway, but going back to the characterization of the female characters in this film, it revolves around the relationship between two sisters, Regina and her younger sister, Samantha. And you'd think for a movie that was set in the 80s that revolves around these two seemingly independent women, it would be kind of progressive and more feminist. But really, I'm going to make the argument that this movie is really conservative in its views. We've seen some movies like The Pit, where women can, like, pick up forks, and that's pretty much all they're allowed to do. But in this movie, all the girls kind of do is talk about guys. And even in the end credits, this male character who gets not even half as much screen time as these female characters is listed above them. So it's kind of a weird thing going on. The times they have changed. Yeah, definitely. But I think this movie was kind of trying, or kind of, like, putting on airs of being progressive by having it star two women, yet it doesn't pass the Bechdel test. Well, there was that one scene, and this really perplexed me, like, did I miss something with the daughter uh, punching her mom? Mm, Yeah. Do you remember that? Like, she fallout socked her mom. And I found there's, you know, this whole movie had a tone of not really taking itself seriously most of the time. That was a moment that wasn't obvious. Oh, that was a joke. That was, no, she just socked her mom in the face. Yeah. And her mom didn't even react like that didn't just happen. You know what I mean? Like, where's the consistency of this trying to be progressive, you know? Yeah, and that was like a moment of like, 
kind of shocking physical violence that yeah. wasn't was not played for la- well it probably was played for laughs but it did not come across as being played for laughs so i wrote that down i was shocked by that there that actually is a good example of the tonal inconsistencies of this film because we move from seeming lighthearted comedy to moments that are like really like depressing and kind of make you take a step back i don't know well, did you guys get a similar impression from that moment i actually I, <laughs> this was supposed to be a, a horror comedy, at least that's how it's listed on IMDb. So I didn't laugh a lot during the movie, but when, cause it's, what happens is, is uh, they get into this argument. This is her stepmother and uh, her stepmother is, is apparently philandering with a neighbor or something. And she calls her on it and the stepmother mm-hmm. slaps the girl and the girl slaps the stepmother back. And then there's this beat. And I'm like, what's she going to do? And she just hauls off and clocks the girl, knocks her over <laughs> the couch and she does a header into the TV. I could not stop laughing. I had to pause the movie. I, I've never seen that in a movie ever. It's like, Jesus, she just punched her in the mouth. It was great. Uh, I found the movie moment like very depressing, but uh, I found the follow-up moment when a guy on the TV says, nice crowd we have out here tonight to be, the point of humor in that scene. One of my favorite things, you said you didn't really laugh very much during the movie. I laughed this whole movie because one of the best things about this movie was the writing. It was the one-liners. I have a list here of one-liners that were just killing me, and I think that's why it's a cult classic. Like, And we're talking about the aggressive. We're talking about the the uh, stepfather or sorry the stepmoms because well, the stepmother is with the father and the father's off at the the Vietnam War that makes sense right like that in the storyline uh, I think so I'm not certain well daddy's off at war and then this mom this hussy of a mom is hitting on the neighbor named Chuck. And the younger daughter goes, you were born with an asshole. You don't need Chuck. And I was dying. (laughs) I was dying. And then even earlier on with that, when the main character was sleeping with the guy that she was seeing in the projector booth, one of the best lines that I was like crying to was, it was saying something like it, it came up um, about it being 15 bucks to sleep with her. And, and the guy goes, you'd be worth a lot more than 15 bucks. Everyone knows that. And he's serious. And he's serious. You know, <laughs> again, the inconsistency of progressive. I don't know. I don't know. Well, a lot of that can also not even be credited to the writers because this movie costs about $500,000 to make. And it, they, as a result of that, they didn't have a lot of time to do reshoots. So apparently, a lot of the dialogue, including the one-liners like that, were just made up on the spot by the performers. Wow, I didn't know that. That's impressive. Uh, yeah, I thought there was a lot of great one-liners, and I know that it says right at the beginning of the Wikipedia page that Joss Whedon took some inspiration from this um, when creating the character of Buffy, and uh, I don't think it's just because. Um, the the lead actresses in this movie are supposed to be progressive um you know i guess whether are whether or not they are is debatable but i would think a lot of his inspiration came from uh the dialogue in this movie and um a lot of it is sort of uh flippant and ridiculous but i i think sean is right when he says it might be why it has that cult following because there is a lot of silly lines in here that kind of remind me of something like Heathers or even Mean Girls that that I was definitely laughing at, too. Yeah, and if even if we just discount the dialogue as being improv, a lot of the writing in other aspects is very solid as well. For example, there will be lots of moments where the audio kind of steps in and t- discusses the tone of the moment. 
for example, when the two girls, after realizing that everyone is gone, they head into a radio station, and the camera dollies past a guy with a gun watching them, and then the radio goes, "Trouble! I'll be watching you tonight, right as we see the guy." Yes, and there are、yeah. lots of really perfect moments like that that are. Very well choreographed. I'm not sure if that was in the writing or in the sound design, but regardless, it's a smart moment. It sounds like I think <clears throat> '80s songs were very literal. Like you know, I, I you know one of the songs. This is verbatim, but it was like, "I see you in the night,、mm-hmm. and I feel really heavy for you." Like there's just these literal songs that just wouldn't fly today. So I guess <laughs> like there's so, so many to take from for every single little moment. I mean, when they're doing the the frickin'、uh, when they're doing the the、uh, shopping spree, it's like girls want to have fun, but it's not girls want to have fun. It's the cover of it. It's not the actual official audio. So perfect, right? So perfect. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What do you think the point of using the cover was versus using the actual audio from like Sydney Lauper? Because I, I actually I didn't notice it was the cover until like one of my friends pointed it out. So I'm curious, like, if that was intentional or if they just did not have the budget to get the actual song. They didn't have the budget. Okay. Like, well, I, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I don't think what I had to say was that interesting. <laughs> no, don't be defeated. I'm just saying. I I think it was yeah budget, but even still, in a movie, a B movie made today, if you wanted to have a cover of a Lady Gaga song or something like that, I don't think that would be able to fly either. I don't think you could have the likeness of it because there was no. Stretch from the official song, it was literally copied cover of it. Maybe I don't know how rights worked in the eighties. You know, yeah, it was a Tammy Hallbrook apparently who sang it. I don't know who she is, so、uh, nobody knows who she is. I have an unusual amount of knowledge about who this chick is. Please、really? elaborate. Okay, this is going to be stupid, but、uh, one of my favorite movies from when I was a kid, I went to see in the theater was the、uh, Chipmunk movie that they made because the Chipmunks were kind of popular in the mid '80s because they had a revival television show that came out. In that movie, my favorite song is called "The Girls of Rock and Roll."、Uh, I always thought it's an interesting bit of trivia to bring up for people who know that movie because "The Girls of Rock and Roll" was originally in a movie called "The Malibu Bikini Car Wash" or something. A softcore porn movie that was made in the late seventies. It was sang in that movie by Tammy Holbrook, who I knew her name because of that. So when I looked up to see who did the cover, girls just want to have fun for this movie and saw her name. I'm like, oh, that's the chick from the thing with the chipmunks. So it's embarrassing, but that's that's how I know who she is. So I, that's actually really interesting. Enough, you totally put me to shame when I'm like, nobody knows who that is. You. <laughs> <laughs> the one loser in the world who knows who Tammy Holbrook is. Hard man, rep it hard. <laughs> But it's it's one loser on a podcast. You can change people's lives here, <laughs> bringing it to the masses. Soon the whole world will know who Tammy Holbrook is. Show a top ten hit within the year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah If、right. the Chipmunks can have a revival, so can Tammy. <laughs> There you go. Proof and point. Guys, is she even alive now? That's nothing Google won't fix. <laughs> anyway, so moving on. At this point in the radio station, the girls get reunited, with, or not reunited. They get united with a guy named Hector, and Hector is some like random guy.、Uh, they make a racist joke at him when he pulls a gun on one of them, and they're like, "Oh, that gun won't cut it out there. That gun might be good for a quote-unquote date night in the barrio, but <laughs> it won't be good against the zombies." And I'm like, "Wait a minute." 
is this movie like actually being racist or is this just a character being racist in the movie? Oh, that was insinuating that that Latino guys they uh they like to rape women at gunpoint. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can hope for ironically racist. I don't know. <laughs> and I'd like to mention that uh there's a little moment of accidental kismet in this scene because right before Robert Beltran has his first line, who plays uh, Hector, uh, the blonde sister, the younger sister, says, beam me up, Scotty, because of all the neon lights and stuff in the radio station. And Robert Beltran famously played a character named Chakotay in Star Trek Voyager that came out in the 1990s. Oh, my God. Oh, that's holy cow. There you go. <laughs> How do you know this? I watched Star Trek Voyager. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I didn't know this guy, this male actor who plays Hector, had any other roles aside from this. Actually, he was uh, first billed in this movie because he was in a movie with Mary Warrenoff called Eating Raul that came out in the early 80s. Wow. Okay, that explains it. Maybe it's not the movie being sexist. It's just uh, him being, like, a big actor. I think that, yeah, because the, the two girls only have, like, uh, I think that... Uh, soap opera credits to their name before this movie. Interesting. So, yeah, and I think, <clears throat> sorry, I think I did read that the actor was, the actor for Hector was hesitant to take this role at first because he didn't want to be, um, he didn't want any stereotypes being thrown his way, so it's, it's interesting that that one kind of slipped in there. Oh, he avoided that. And uh, also, I, oh, go ahead, Sean. Go ahead. No, well, I I was just going to interject. I've been literally sitting here Googling Tammy Holbrook, and I have something worth talking about. Um, she was actually, this is part of my childhood, she is alive. She It was a voice actor. She voice acted Tommy Pickles in the Rugrats TV show. She was also in The Devil's Rejects. Remember, she was the prostitute that Bill Mosley characters was, was sleeping with before they, Diamond Dallas Page, shot them. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we all know that is crazy, right? And she wow. was strong, right? Tammy Holbrook, and I'm like, nobody knows who she is. I'm a jackass. <laughs> wow. Holy she, shit. I know exactly who she is. That's crazy. She's Tommy goddamn Pickles. Oh, my God. That is crazy. For yeah. four episodes. <laughs> oh, my God. I noticed this when I watched Devil's Rejects. I was like, oh, my God, I know that voice from somewhere. I think she became eventually became the the permanent voice. IMDb is hard to say, but uh, she's, I think she was the OG longtime voice, maybe. Wow. Interesting. That's wild. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. moving away from Tammy Holbrook, we get a, <laughs> yeah, move it. Yeah, we, we get kind of a weird moment of like romantic slash sexual tension between the older sister Regina and Hector when they're kind of like sitting next to each other and like flirting. Well, like we got we got a lot of love is playing in the background and something really weird happens. Like this is like a fun like cute moment between the two of them, even though arguably Regina shouldn't be like moving on so quick from her current boy toy. But anyway, we cut out of that set to the blonde sister sitting there on the bench alone. And we slowly dolly away from the younger sister while she's just sitting there alone as their like voices flirting, like hit her in the background. And I'm like, wow, this is just like really depressing that her sister, her older sister, like abandoned her for this guy. 
<laughs> and this was a really weird tonal inconsistency moment for me. I don't know if any of you got that because I didn't get this on any viewings aside from this one. Uh, it's interesting how they played off this love affair. I mean, you got you had the really cool dynamic with the girl and the guy in the, the booth who ends up dying. But I mean, if you want to back it up a bit, everybody's dead from this comet, right? So yeah. first of all, these sisters aren't even reacting to the fact that everybody they know or love are dead. We're just going back in this again, which is hilarious because it's like a couple of valley girls doing what valley girls do, right? But I think to back up before this flirty moment, wait, you know what? Maybe it was before or after, but the big changing point of her liking him was her walking into him doing sit-ups. Oh, right. It, I forgot so about that. So the whole earth is dead. Is, is dead or zombies, but a select few, and he's doing sit-ups. <laughs> I was, I was dying. I was dying. But yeah, it's interesting, right? Yeah. And never let it be said that a movie can't teach you something, even if it's got comet zombies in it. Because uh, my dad was in the special forces in the 1980s and was stationed at Fort Bragg for his entire career. I spent all my summers there, and a large part of my childhood. <clears throat> Uh, no, a small part of my childhood living there. And she refers to it because her dad was stationed in Fort Bragg because he's third special forces group or something. And she referred to Fort Bragg as Smoke Bomb Hill. And I have never heard that name. I had to look it up. And that's it's apparently a nickname of Fort Bragg. So I learned something. Wow. <laughs> that's wild. That wasn't about Tammy Holbrook. <laughs> We're educating each other here and the listener. I love it. I love it. <laughs> So eventually Hector decides that he has to separate from these girls to go, like, visit his mom. And normally, you know, in a Survivor movie of the apocalypse, like, the survivors tend to stick together and, like, work together to solve each other's problems. But nope, he just kind of, like, goes off alone. And he has a really serious moment where he looks at mementos around his house. But it's broken up by, like, slapstick from, like, a child zombie. And that's another moment that I thought was really inconsistent. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I don't know about inconsistent. Like, we hadn't seen anything like that before, but um, I would have thought the movie was would have felt very empty and vapid if we uh, didn't have scenes like this. And I thought I thought it was nice to kind of have a little bit of an action sequence that was still a little bit slapsticky because you know it's a campy movie and so it's not going to do a complete one eighty on us. But I thought the child looked creepy. I thought. Um, Hector's lines while he was running away from this child were funny. Uh, he says, you're lucky I like kids, and there goes the neighborhood. And so I thought that it was it was holding on to um, this sort of quirky tone that it had established. But we also got a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a reminder that this is also a mutant comment zombie movie. And so I, I really enjoyed that scene. No, that's fair. That's an interesting. Was- oh, go ahead, Sean. I always have an issue with uh, how people, like, and I'm saying people in a movie react to their family or friends dying. I mean, obviously, let's let's call it what it is. It's a very cheesy, campy movie. But, I mean, again, all the family and friends are dead. These girls aren't reacting either. So this was the, maybe the only instance of this guy reacting to, oh, my God, is, is everybody's dead. I had read in the my favorite part of IMDb, the trivia section, that um, the actor is supposed to have just a breakdown, just a freak out about his um, – about his family dying. And I think that would have been great, the most accurate depiction of how you feel when your family's all dead to zombies. But maybe it's good he backed it up because the contrast of no remorse to total remorse might have taken away from the overall tone. I don't know. Yeah. The way I felt about this scene was I 
I appreciated what they were trying to do here, but they, I don't feel it was necessary, and I'll tell you why. Um, first of all, there's a scene that's not in the movie that happened off screen where they went to a uh, facility somewhere and got guns. Um, yeah. The two girls are shooting MAC-10s. He has a new pistol when he's at the house. Uh, that scene, they talk about that they should go do that, but they don't show it. And I thought that, going back to the inconsistency of the movie, he's obviously not the hero of the piece. It's the two girls, and he is a supplement to them, like a, like a secondary hero. And focusing on him in this scene, I think, is wasteful when you consider how little screen time they end up giving him. I think it would have been more... Uh, Early it would have flowed better if they'd shown them going to try to get the guns and maybe they run into a couple of these zombies and um, they show the girls uh, capability in taking care of themselves because they've been trained by their father uh, to be these, you know, badass chicks. And they could have shown that he was, you know, trying to, you know, a couple scenes, maybe him going up and trying to save them and them saying, look, we don't need you to save us and that kind of stuff. And they, they chose instead to do this this really personal scene with him that, again, inconsistently is intercut with this ridiculous scene of him being chased stupidly through the house by this little kid zombie and then escaping out the window, holding, clutching his stuff, running down the street. And I, I don't think it's necessary. I think they should, they would have better served themselves by doing a different scene. Yeah, that's fair. And, and do you not think that the, the scene in the mall a little while later kind of, um, shared the wealth and gave the girls a scene like that? What, what did you think about that scene? I mean, I, I, the problem I had with that scene is because they do set them up as these two badass girls. And then there's this moment of symbolism where, uh, the younger sister puts down her Mac 11 amongst a bunch of like shoes. And then they go on a shopping spree set to a covered version of girls just want to have fun. So they take all the character development that they've done up until now, and then turn them into these vapid teenagers who just want to go shopping at the end of the day. And it could be argued that maybe they just wanted to have a little fun in the face of the apocalypse, but there was nothing there to support that. And then the scene with the gang that shows up, the trauma gang that was randomly in the mall, they, they, they do this really weird shootout and, and like uh, slapsticky type of stuff before getting kidnapped and, and tied up with chains you know, in this really over-the-top way, I just didn't feel like it was, again, I hated that scene because it was just like, okay, so we're just going to throw everything out the window and we're going to do this now well, because we have a mall. Well, I think it was less of them just, like, wanting to have fun, despite what the song suggests, and more of, like, the commentary and consumerism that you mentioned. However, I think in addition to that, it's a lot of trying to return to normalcy because – these three characters, Hector, Samantha, and Regina, all handled the apocalypse in different ways. So Hector has a much more, at least at the beginning, a much more like realistic reaction to the apocalypse. Like, I need to see how my family's doing. Oh my god, I can't believe my family's gone. Like, something like, like really depressing like that. Whereas these girls tend to live in, I don't know, not skepticism, but in like disbelief that the apocalypse has happened. And they try to do things to establish normalcy. Like something you'll note, when the younger sister, she looks outside and sees everyone's dead, the first thing she does is goes back inside the house and continues pouring her cereal and making breakfast like normal. Sure. They're doing these things to try to reestablish normalcy to prevent themselves from, like, freaking out. 
Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think if there was better writing to support that, I would have liked it more. But I can, I can, I can appreciate what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, me too. I agree with that. I, I wouldn't have thought of it that way. It, it seems like they wanted to do. They, bottom line, in so many ways, they couldn't decide what they wanted to do with this. So I think that's just another. It suffers from that at the same time that normalcy idea. Yeah, I agree because. In addition to that idea, we have a variety of different tones throughout the film. Like we have the campiness, then we have the like depressing seriousness, and then we have the like comedy about like boy drama and like that sort of thing. Because these girls, they spend most of their time talking about boys. And superficially, I might add, like they only have one serious moment there when they're like, oh, I actually liked this guy and now he's dead. And then she starts crying. Yeah. I, I think I'm just, I'm struggling with, whether um, whether I like all these tonal shifts, because I'm sure if there really was an apocalypse, it, w- it wouldn't go one way or the other, right? You're going to be depressed, and you're going to have fun, and you're going to talk about boys, and you're going to shoot stuff. And so I kind of like that this movie displayed all those things and wasn't so concerned with um, going to one end of the spectrum or another, Um but I am, I'm still struggling with, uh, if I, if I did want it to go a bit deeper, like, I think the Jimmy Neutron movie that had, you know, parents being abducted by aliens and so kids had this whole city to themselves, I think that ended up going a bit, a bit deeper into what that means by the end of it. And so, um, it didn't seem like this movie was concerned with doing that. And, uh, I'm, I'm still not sure how I feel about that. Yeah, it's, I'm also struggling with the same thing, like, how to reconcile all these different elements of the film that, like, seemingly work against one another. But, and I would be more forgiving of these elements if they were all, like, fast-paced and hit each other, like, one after the other, and, like, kind of, like, jump from, like, seriousness to campiness, and these tonal shifts kind of contributed to the roller coaster that is this film. However, this film loses any momentum it may have to continue with the roller coaster analogy due to all the padding. There are so many extreme long shots of the city that don't really establish much aside from the passage of time that really slow down the film. And there seems to be a remarkable amount of padding, even though this movie is only 95 minutes. Oh, those long shots establish one thing for sure. The apocalypse is orange. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah what, did, what did you guys think of those long shots? Do you think they did a, a good job of illustrating the apocalypse? Did you appreciate those? I like them a lot, especially the first few extreme long shots, which show machines and everything still working and the world kind of going about its everyday life just without humans. That's really, really solid. But later long shots tend to lose that purpose. I appreciated the um, ambition that those long shots represent because they didn't have a lot of money to make this movie. So whenever you see one of the streets completely empty, they they had to... uh, do a lot of those shots like when there was no traffic on the street or you know they, I think they shot some of them like Christmas morning so that they could make sure nobody was going to be out and so it was it shows an inventiveness that um I can appreciate but I just kept noticing like a car in one shot or it's not supposed to be there or like some window washers on a building and oh really was no, I, did, I didn't see any of that but yeah, I, 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 I like how ambitious they were trying to be with those shots at least I like how you said that. Honestly, I think you hit. I agree too. Uh, my one of my favorite horror movies of all time is Twenty Eight Days Later, and I think that 
we've seen that beginning where he's just walking around the city going hello and there's nobody around and that is terrifying and honestly for a movie like this and it's cheesiness and it's whatever is wrong with it i think it did a little bit of that right because i thought those shots were great and i think that appreciating the time when this was made in the 84 yeah the apocalypse is red at least they kept that tone that Everybody who's dead is turned into red dust. Uh, the sky is red, okay, because of the comment. All right, I'll forgive it. But those long shots were were wicked. They definitely. It, it seems like this movie had some talented people attached to it, uh, be it production design, be it camera, not direction. That's for damn sure. <laughs> but it had some talented people attached to it, and I guess they just couldn't gel, be it budget, be it time, be it the million other factors that take place when putting a movie together. But to, I love the exteriors. Yeah, I was a big fan. Yeah, and even though, like, they have all this stuff working for them, I think this movie ultimately suffers a lot due to ambition, because moving on to the third act, we enter a subplot about scientists where they're kind of killing people and taking their blood to develop some sort of serum, and I really like only one aspect of this subplot, and that aspect is the scientists subtly and, like, slowly going crazy and doing, like, crazy things, because I think that's really well done. However, unfortunately, a lot of the other performances in this scene suffer. For example, the little sister, when she interacts with people in regard to the scientists, her performance really fails, alongside the performances of the two little kids. They uh, establish, uh, kind of, early in the movie, that uh, through some expositional dialogue between the two scientists, that... uh, the effects of the comet, depending on your exposure level, can either turn uh, is, is slowly seeping the moisture out of people's bodies, so they're eventually going to turn into dust. So the more exposure you have over time, you start to turn into like these uh, monstrous zombie-looking things. Uh, so the reason that their behavior changes uh, is because they have been exposed. Because my favorite scene in the movie was when the female scientist uh, kills herself because she's been exposed to it, and she explains to. Uh, the Hector character, uh, when he comes back to the radio station looking for the girls, uh, that she and all the rest of the scientists left open the vents, the ventilation system, so they were exposed to whatever the comet uh, brought with it. And so that's why they, their behavior changes. But like you said, it, that's about the only, like, they, they're kind of nefarious to begin with. So I don't know that that had much to do with it as a motivational factor later on in the film. Yeah, and I'm not saying that this nefariousness is bad. I'm just saying they're trying to be a little ambitious and they're kind of overextending. Like, they, I felt they needed some sort of big heist or some big climactic explosion moment to wrap up the film. Yet, what we get is just one car exploding at the scientist's base when Hector rescues the girl. That's all he had the money for. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I feel like if you only have so much money and you're constrained by things, you got, I think you got, really got to focus on one or maybe even two bad guys. Like there was so much happening. First of all, your family's dead. Then there's zombies. Then there's a gang in the alley, which uh, was hilarious because, again, this is a testament to the time. It's a dark, dark mall, and everybody's wearing sunglasses. And I'm just like, oh, my God. You know, it was like. The Sunglasses at Night song was probably the hottest song then, and everyone's like, oh, they're cool. They're a bunch of cool. Anyways, <laughs> you got the gang in the mall, and then you got the shootout, which actually was pretty damn good. Like, those sound effects, those gun effects were pretty sweet considering. Then you move 
then zombies, we see a little bit more zombies, and then we come back to these scientists. It was like, holy cow, you crammed so much in 94 minutes, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they did cram a lot in, but I still thought there were a few scenes that were just padding. Another reason for, or the reason for the sunglasses, which they don't get into, is because they're losing uh, water. And so the eyesight is becoming more and more susceptible to light. That's why at the very end of the movie, they've turned all the lights down in the facility before the power gets cut completely. And so the street gang is wearing sunglasses because they've been affected by the radiation and they're slowly turning into these monsters. So they're all wearing sunglasses because it hurts their eyes. But they don't establish that. Uh, It's something I had to gather just from knowing what happens when you get dehydrated. Wow. Uh, wow. No, that's that's super neat, dude. I kind of cuz I thought that they they were just wearing sunglasses because clearly when you see the eyes of one of these creatures after they're far enough along in the process, you can tell that they're, you know, they're they're deteriorating and they're going down. So I just thought that they were wearing the sunglasses so at some point they could lift the sunglasses up and and show the good characters that they're evil. But yeah. then after that, they put the sunglasses back on, so I guess that doesn't make much sense. That's really cool, Eric. And yeah. It would have been nice. It would have been nice had the movie actually told you that, but it doesn't because it's poorly written. Well, well you could have done. I love that. I love that line. I think you could have, or that idea because I didn't think of that at all. And I think that's a great. It would be great if we known that. But that just opens up so much more they could have done with the movie than just putting aside, like, you're dealing with the conflict of these teenagers who are sick, why are they wearing sunglasses, they're affected by it. Well, instead of making them enemies and bad guys, because we've already got fucking zombies outside already, why not do it like a la Dawn of the Dead, they start turning, there's a goodness in them, I just want to survive, then they become more heroes. We totally cut that, the uh, Latino character out completely, and then we bring in the scientists. We have some sort of weaving through this roller coaster, moving towards the problems with it. That makes me upset they didn't take advantage of that. Yeah. And the only indicator that that's the case is at the very end, uh, one of the lead scientists uh, is starting to turn into one of these zombies, and he reaches into his pocket and pulls out a pair of sunglasses after squinting into the light and puts them on. So that's the only indication you get that that's why everybody's wearing sunglasses, and it comes at almost the very end of the movie. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Right. I'd never realized that. I, That's amazing. I need to go lie down, you guys. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. So next time, like, I'm at a party and I'm wearing sunglasses indoors, I'll just be like, hey, this is why I'm just dehydrated. <laughs> you see no to the comment? Uh, yeah, no, no. <laughs> Okay, so I think that about wraps up the movie. We've pretty much talked about everything. Is there anything else you guys want to touch on before we move into final thoughts? Uh, Two things. Uh, First of all, uh, considering that the effects of the comet make everything dehydrated, everybody turns to dust, uh, I I actually really enjoyed the shot at the end where the, the rain starts coming down and washes all of that down into a sewer. Like it's just washing everything away and we can start over. That kind of weaves itself into the ending of the movie where uh, the girl is like, we got to restart civilization. Um, and also the thing with the DMK uh, initials in the video game at the beginning of the movie, they kind of make a big deal out of it. It's mentioned more than once like that she's obsessed with who beat her high score. And then they just have this throwaway joke at the end of the movie 
where this guy shows up out of nowhere in a car and takes his little sister away, and his name and is is his initials are DMK and it's on his license plate. And I I found out that the joke is only at the in the end of the movie because the lead actress insisted that they wrap that joke up because they had no intention of doing so. So they threw that initials thing at the end. So I thought wow. that was worth mentioning. Hmm. That's very much worth mentioning because I found it very irrelevant that uh, the DMK joke was inserted as the license plate. I felt it was like, <laughs> oh, great, we're getting reincorporation, but for zero purpose. Yep. And also to so, – oh, go ahead, Sean. I was going to say so much more I feel like they could have done with really investigating this on a budget. Just write a good story and bring stuff in like this. They didn't capitalize on any of this stuff. Yeah, they had a good story. They had a solid, like, background for the world that they wanted to build, which just the plot was very much lacking. Okay, so I guess that's it. Uh, do any of you guys have anything else you want to talk about? Uh, I got a couple things. That first zombie encounter, uh, this is what I don't get with the zombies. I mean, we all know zombies, you know, they have different intentions. It's usually brains, right, unless it's an alien whatever. But the first indication with this zombie wasn't like it was a person that had been taken over, infected, or dehydrated for that matter. Because he just stands up in the alley, and I don't know if you guys remember, he just stands to look at the main character, and Regina, and goes, come here. She goes, no, I'm good, thanks. And he just goes, come here. And you're just like, so what are the intentions of these zombies? Like, do they want brains? Do they want to kill somebody? And also, too, the only interaction these zombies ever did with anybody was hug people. That's all they did. They came up. They didn't rip anybody apart. I don't think they killed anybody. Every single zombie that made contact with an actor just hugged them and wrapped their arms around them. So oh, that's a great was, point, right? Like, what are you doing? Okay, you, now you think about when you think about how movies are made, and you think about on the day, you got an actor who probably just showed up. It's the first seat, you know, first meeting anybody on set playing this zombie. The director comes up and you talk about this scene. The, the guy is going, "What kind of zombie am I? What am I? You know, what are my intentions?" Maybe not verbatim in those terms, but this is just an indication of a director not having any direction whatsoever. So we got this guy in the prosthetic makeup and just goes, I don't know, just say, come here. And then you say no. And then you say, come here a second time. All right, let's get it, guys. We got it. Let's shoot it. <laughs> yeah, that, it that's, just kills me. That's a really good point, Sean, because I was just thinking that after talking about this mall scene and especially these uh, these evil researchers that – you know, aren't that evil. I, I was just thinking that this movie, it doesn't really have any stakes, and if even the zombies aren't trying to kill people, like, I think this movie may have been better off just excluding a lot of these um, antagonists, maybe entirely, and just really going in on, like, being less of a horror film and, and more of a outright comedy about what girls might do in the apocalypse, especially when they don't have anything to fight against. And I don't mean... I want to see a montage of shopping, but like if it had gotten more into uh, these sorts of, I don't know, existential questions, like there was, there was a scene where um, Samantha and Regina were having a conversation on the hood of the car. Um, they were, they were out perched in the middle of, you know, a barren Los Angeles or whatever it was. And they were talking about their past life and they touched on what things were like now. And I, and I thought that was really immersive. And every time um, something like a zombie came up or, or these researchers came up. I kind of, I kind of just wanted to get past it and get more, uh, into these girls' interactions. I was never really afraid for them and I was never, I didn't feel like that was where the heart of the story was, I think. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I very much agree. A lot of the movie, a lot of the interactions with the scientists or zombies are attempts to raise the stakes, but they never really work in that way. Yeah. Okay, so moving into final thoughts. Uh, let's start off with Eric. What did you think of Night of the Comet? All right, so I've heard about this movie for over the years several times from people talking about cult classics from the 80s, and having seen it now, I have to admit that I'm kind of underwhelmed. Uh, the dialogue is pretty standard stuff with the only real bright spots coming from lines that were either improvised or written by the actors themselves. The plot is all over the place with a threat that changes many times over the course of the film. It's almost as if they couldn't decide what kind of movie they wanted to make. Uh, the characters are interesting, Uh and about the only thing that kept me invested in the movie. The action scenes are all poorly choreographed, and the villains, save for Billy, the gang leader, who I loved, were all pretty stock for the time. I appreciated the not-so-subtle commentary the movie kind of attempted to make about consumerism, but ultimately I think any kind of message was lost within the muddled plot. Uh, this is one of those flicks that I think is heavily influenced on whether or not you have your nostalgia glasses on before you watch it. If I had seen this one growing up, I might love it, but seeing it for the first time as an adult, I just think it's a middle-of-the-road horror film with a strong cast of interesting characters. Overall, I'd give it a 6 out of 10 and would recommend it only to 80s horror aficionados. Awesome, great. So, Liam, what did you think of the movie? Yeah, so I liked a lot of this movie, you guys. Um... And I didn't dislike, you know, really any of it. All, all my problems with it were kind of stuff it didn't do, not stuff that it did do. Like, I, I was fine with all these, uh, I was fine with the mall scene and this shootout. I thought that was interesting. And then, you know, it didn't, it didn't carry on until the end of the movie and when we got to kind of a new conflict. And so that was, it was underwhelming. Um, you know, it's a good word, good word that Eric used, but, um, I was still fine with it and I, and I liked, I liked watching the researchers, but, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't think it needed to be there. Um, and so my, my big problem with this movie is that I just, I really wanted to love it because I loved the characters. Uh, I didn't love the, I, I liked the characters of Samantha and, um, Regina. I liked a lot of their lines like Sean. I, I was laughing through a lot of this movie and, um, I thought it was quirky. I thought it was fun. And I, I just wish that it really, um, I was talking earlier about going to one end of the spectrum or the other. I, I, I think I'm coming to realize that I really wish it went all in on this sort of quirkiness and didn't try to have these elements of, um, you know, other, other horror movies of the time, uh, like the zombies or like the nefarious researchers. And so I'm disappointed that I didn't, that I didn't love this movie, especially because, you know, I'm a love whore. Like I, I love Eggo waffles, and that you know they're not even that good. So like I, I <laughs> so I, I, I wish I really, really loved this movie, and I wouldn't be opposed to watching it again, certainly. And and so that's why I'd give it a seven out of ten right now. And I, I, I definitely recommend it to anyone that likes this sort of uh, '80s feel. Um, from what I've seen, it does seem to be sort of indicative of the of the era, and. Um, it's definitely a fun watch, but, you know, I think a lot of people might like it more than I did. But I can't imagine anyone, like, really disliking it. And for that reason, I'd say, you know, definitely check it out if anything we've said tonight interests you. Okay, cool, cool. So, Sean, what do you think of the movie? 
you know, you can pick any movie you watch apart a million times. Uh, but at the bottom, end of the day, were you entertained? And honestly, I was surprisingly entertained. Uh, you guys said it, you guys said it and touched upon it, the fact that you, this movie, you had to put yourself in that time period, um, to really appreciate why it is what it is. It looks like a, it looks like a bunch of students had a decent budget to make a decent movie, but was important to them. But let's get some zombies in it. Let's get some girls in it. Let's get some guns in it, you know? So I think if you put yourself in it when it was made, you can appreciate it, why it is what it is. And that is being a movie about valley girls going through the post apocalypse on a $500,000 dollar budget which really isn't that much um the, the focus was definitely lost if you're really going to talk about it being a movie because the focus went from like i've said before death to zombies to how people just act in the post-apocalypse uh when you know now these these guys these kids are now dying they have sunglasses on they're taking over mall they're taking girls hostage there are a lot of rape undertones in this movie, and maybe it's because the standard of sexuality and what you can talk about was hugely different in 1984 between uh, the male being so so strong and I sleep with you and you take it. Like There were some undertones with that between the boyfriend at the beginning uh, and the gangsters. It seemed like they that was their intention, even though it wasn't obvious. Um, and that was interesting and stuff that wouldn't fly today. But I think if this movie just maybe focused on something, uh, it had the budget for it could have done really well you've got zombies but you have no gore and you have no deaths there was almost no blood nobody dying no cool effects it was just some guys in some sunken eye prosthetics which was kind of disappointing but you know what what saves this movie for me is the writing i've got a list of one-liners here that just killed me because somebody who was genuinely funny wrote some lines for this or it was some really really good improv because there's some funny shit in this movie so I'd say if you're a fan of movies of this era, of this style, that are this cheesy and corny, it's definitely worth watching because it is funny. Um, I got to finish off with my final line. Billy, the head of this gang that's taking them hostage, and one of the gang, the girls yells, you're crazy. And he goes, I'm not crazy. I just don't give a fuck. <laughs> my favorite line in the movie. <laughs> a testament to the writing in this film. Okay, awesome. So, I like this movie. I'm a little bit middle of the road for this movie because, for me, this movie has a lot of really high highs and, unfortunately, quite a few low lows in terms of different aspects of this film. So, to start with the positive, the sound design, I really, really liked. I thought the score worked really well to supplement the fun attitude that I was going for and worked really well in the serious moments that the movie hit. However... Um, this, uh, these serious moments and these comedic moments often didn't like gel together for me, which is unfortunate. And uh, they didn't really give me a good sense of like fun pacing to the film because there was a lot of padding in between from a lot of B-roll shots of the city or a lot of scenes that didn't really seem to have an intention or scenes that kind of went on a bit too long. In terms of performances, the performances are mostly solid, but the little sister occasionally has a few slip-ups in her performance, and a lot of the side characters are horrible. For example, the edgy goon gang members are atrocious actors. They're, like, worse than trauma-level actors, and hmm. a few of the scientists fail as well. There are a lot of, like, really nice, subtle things in the movie to notice, though. For example, the way the pop songs in the background of a lot of scenes supplement the tone of the scene that's going on. So if you're listening to lyrics, you can be like, oh, wow, these lyrics actually really relate 
to the mood of the scene. But unfortunately, what kills this movie for me is the tonal inconsistencies. Because this movie goes from a comedy to a campy to de- being depressingly serious. And this depressing seriousness in some moments led me to view some of these comedic moments, especially the conclusion of the film where they're trying to reestablish a return to normalcy is just depressing and they're in an empty world and they're trying to find meaning in an empty world. Existentialist ideas like Leah mentioned, yet the movie doesn't really explore any of these ideas in depth. So I would recommend this movie to some people. Uh, I would recommend this movie to people who are looking to explore 80s horror and are interested in post-apocalyptic films. And I like this movie overall. So it gets a 6 minus out of 10 for me, which is a change from my original review when I gave it a 6 plus. So it gets a 6 minus. So, yeah, it's hardly a change, but a change nonetheless. But I thought it was solid. Okay, so that's about it for this episode. Uh, What are we doing next week on the Horror Explorer flashback? And we have already decided what we're doing next week or next episode, whenever that may be. So we are going to be watching Night of the Creeps. So have any of you guys heard of this or seen it before? Well... Uh, I have, I, I, I hadn't heard of it or seen it. I have at the time of this recording, but, um, you know, uh, this movie, we've, Night of the Comet, uh, we, we talked about how, you know, it had a lot of potential and it was too ambitious and stuff. And I was thinking that it might be a cool franchise. And so I watched this Night of the Comet before I watched Night of the Creeps. And so I went into the Night of the Creeps and I was ready for like a rad sequel and to see Regina and Samantha, like, take on more stuff in the apocalypse and i was i was disappointed quickly but then uh i was quickly not disappointed and we'll, we'll get into that another time okay disappointed great and undisappointed yeah i love night of the creeps so i'm so glad we're doing that awesome yeah so you'd seen it before before we mentioned it many times awesome yeah uh this movie actually is i've seen it like maybe even in the double digits because whenever there's just like a party at my apartment, like I'll just put it up on the screen, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and just like, it's a good background movie. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> I haven't heard of this movie at all. I'm literally just Googling images and looking at this stuff as you would say, it's a good background party movie. It's <laughs> just like, Dude, where's the invite, man? I'm there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The posters for that movie are fantastic. It got me so excited. Yeah. Okay, so that's what we're talking about next time. Adios, I suppose. I suppose that's it. (laughs) See ya. Bye. Later days. And as Mike would say, see ya later. So so yours is is see ya and Mike's is see ya later? No, No, yours is adios. 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 Mine is adios, but like Mike says see ya later in like a sound drop at the end of episodes. And uh, since Mike's not here to do the sound drops, I say, see you later. It hopes that that will somehow recapture the spirit of Mike. Yeah, because people are going to be missing it, definitely. You didn't say it mean enough. Yeah. <laughs>